You're listening to Inside the Aluminum Tube. This podcast has adult language and sometimes contains graphic descriptions of accidents and incidents, often resulting in death. If you're scared to fly, proceed with caution. Sir, are your pants meowing? Yeah, you interested? Pull up. No, the plane is about to crash. Wind shear. You're looking a little anxious, Kent. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Increase climb. Only if you really need me to. Threw his clothes off, had an accident, got his tree, and went night-night. 50, 40. Oh, so like some dumb bro shit. Okay, cool. Cool, 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 cool. 30, 20. I'm sorry, I'm a little overwhelmed by what you just said. 10. Hence being poked in the rear uh, as a man in the middle of the aisle. Climb now. Given the context that you've given me, this does not sound like a good plan. Clear of conflict. This is an aviation history podcast, which looks at events in aviation history like air disasters, accidents, incidents, mishaps, and other crazy events. I'm Shannon Baker. I'm your host and the creator of this podcast. If you want to know what qualifies me to do this podcast, you'll have to go listen to episode zero. You can learn all about me there. Although, I'm going to have to update episode zero because I... I changed airplanes. I'm not on the 787 anymore. I'm also a captain on the Airbus now. Yep. So I need to go back and update it. Anyway. Like a newsletter. Exactly. So if you want to see pictures of the events and enhance your experience, you should follow me on Instagram and Twitter, both at AluminumTube. You can also uh, email me at AluminumTubePodcast at gmail.com. If you want to see the pictures I post of the episodes, you can find them on on my Instagram, both in the carefully labeled story highlights. I take time to do those. And in the gallery, if you drop me a note... Give me your address via DM. I'll send you a bomb-ass decal. So I, but I'd like to ask my listeners if they could please leave a review for my podcast and tell your friends about it because that's how podcasts grow. It's really the only way that podcasts kind of get big is by word of mouth. I don't have an advertising budget. You know, I do this whole thing by myself. So, okay. Um, if you've listened to other episodes, you already know that I always have a co-host who is not an aviation expert. Their role is to ask questions that will help you understand what actually happened. My co-host today is Erin O'Connor. We haven't recorded for a year and she's back. Welcome back um, and give us an update. Um, The update is we're still surviving a pandemic, so that's exciting. Not much has changed though. Still living in New York, still rocking the hair and makeup. Getting text messages. Getting text messages right now as I read this lovely one-star review. (laughs) <laughs> oh, my one-star <laughs> review. I love it. I, I asked people to a- a- send me reviews, and I got a one-star review. And I actually, it didn't upset me at all. I actually found it pretty hilarious. Oh, my God. Uh, hop young females. That, I love that. I love that you need to entertain what I'm assuming is hip young females. Yes. I I I don't care for the hop ones. The hip ones are much better. The hip ones. Well, c- clearly, obviously. Right. Dear goodness gracious, sorry, you're you're just too woke for him. I, I think that's what it is. I really think it's it's that I'm too woke. You're so woke. Also, I love that he went after like the facts. I would say th- the first thing that you can always know in your podcast is how factually accurate and fact checked it is. Right. And he went for it. I he was did. Like, oh I, I, God. Now, admittedly, he he picked out a typo that I made. Seaboard instead of seaborn, which was an N instead of a D. And I read seaborn instead of seaboard, which is just a flub on my part, but it's funny. I just, and also he says that I use my podcast to pick up on hot young females. Oh, yeah. Okay. The, let me, let me see if this, if this line works for you, Aaron. Okay. Hey, baby, why don't you come and be on my podcast? Ooh. I don't, I feel like that's probably not, I feel like there's better pickup lines. Oh, I'm sure that there are. And they probably don't include a podcast. Yeah. I, I think that's the, 
sort of a better way to say that you're just not getting any would be like, come be on my podcast. <laughs> Let's go talk into microphones. Exactly. Let's go spend two hours together talking to microphones. Whatever. It was just funny. So nothing really changed with you. Still a pandemic. It's the first one I ever had. It was a me too. And it was a pandemic when we, you know, when we recorded last, which was a year ago, and it's still going on. So yeah, we'll just we'll take it as it comes. Oh yeah. We oh both yeah, we are vaccines. vaccinated. That's, That's right. cool. Yeah, we did. We yeah. we got vaccines and that is very cool. So I'm really happy about that too. But today I have a really cool story for you. And I I wrote this story with you in mind because I know that you're a true crime person. I know that you kind of have a dark side as far as like listening to that kind of stuff. So here's a good one. But I always like, like you said about the aviation facts, I like to put lots of facts in there. So on this one, we're going to cover the airplane a little bit. I'm going to show you pictures and then we're going to cover the company. And the company is actually really fascinating. So we're going to spend a little more time than I normally do talking about the actual like the the operator. Okay, cool. Normally, I just kind of breeze over the operator, but we're going to spend a little more time. The operator is interesting. You'll see why. Let's talk about the airplane. And the first thing I'm going to do is show you a picture. Okay. I feel like we should let our listeners know that I am wearing an Ed Kemper sweatshirt before we start this. Looks like a little guy. Yeah. But I want you to note that it has a smile painted on it. It has. Oh my gosh, how cute. Isn't that funny? Oh, and then that makes the nose an actual nose. Okay, cool. Yeah. That's so that's little... the airplane. Cool. Okay. It's a multi-purpose airplane. And here's a picture of it fitted as a fire bomber. <gasps> Oh my goodness, this little airplane that could. Yeah, it really is. It, it really is the airplane that could. So let's talk about it. The airplane is a British Aerospace 146, also called the BAE 146. It was later renamed the Avrojet. It's a regional airliner, so designed for short hops. It was built in the UK by British Aerospace Systems, and later that was transferred to Avro International Aerospace. Production began in 1983 with BAE, British Aerospace, and then it switched to Avro in 1992. Production ended in 2001. The entire time, 387 aircraft were built. Okay. Is that a lot or a little in like aircraft fleetdom? That's kind of a little. Okay. It kind of depends on who you compare it with because Boeing like built thousands of the seven, you know, like more than a thousand of the 767. Right. There was like 1,500 of them. And for, for instance, Airbus built a competitor, you know, to Boeing and they sold like 2,000 of them. Okay. Or so yeah. So like it's kind of like 350 is well. kind of, that's kind of a little bit. The last episode that we did was about the L-1011. Right. And they only built 250 of those. Oof. So that's like, I don't know. So it kind of varies, but I would still kind of classify that as a little. Okay. Um, the earliest version carried about 80 people. The later versions, they were stretched and they could carry about 110 people. The BAE 146 is described as a high wing airplane with a T-tail. It has four engines mounted underneath the wings. The aircraft was designed for very quiet operations and it's been marketed under the name the Whisper Jet. Although the last, the L-1011 from a previous episode was also marketed as the Whisper Jet. Whisper Jet. Apparently that's a popular name. Because yeah, I, I really get upset with loud airplanes for sure. So I mean, I think that every jet should be a Whisper Jet. Whisper. Yes. It was widely used at small city-based airports. So like central city, right? Center of the city airports to keep people from having com to commute from like a long way away. So they'd use okay. it in LaGuardia instead of... Newark or whatever. Gotcha, gotcha. Notably, it was used in London City, which is 
right downtown in London versus Heathrow or Gat, which which can be like an hour and a half away. Yeah, they're out there. Yeah, they're way out there. But London City is like right downtown. Its primary role was a regional jet for airlines, but there are some that have been converted to corporate jets. The BAE 146 or the Avrojet is still used by regional carriers in both the EU and the UK. An example is a company called CityJet. They still fly them. There were several versions with varying load capabilities, even a car, even a cargo version. So you said it was the little airplane that could. It really is. And a lot of them are still flying. A few were turned into fire bombers, which we looked at first. The aircraft was used in the U.S. for short routes to smaller airports. And because of its design, it could be operated in and out of mountain airports that would be dangerous for other airplanes like Telluride or Aspen, Colorado. So how long is a... a flight like this a couple of hours no more right no more than a couple hours okay yeah the maximum would be like three hours but typically they're going to be like an hour and a half you could think of it flying from like pittsburgh to new york right that's kind of what i had like that or like or 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 plattsburgh to like you know what i mean my alma mater there you go exactly so but that's kind of what they were designed for the reason they were good in mountain airports is because they had four engines. Why did they have four engines? So the concept is really simple. If you have an airplane with two engines and you're flying out of a mountainous airport and you lose one of those engines, you lose a lot of capability of the aircraft. But if you have four engines and you lose one engine, you don't lose very much. I'd have eight engines, just in case. <laughs> but the like problem is... Like an old boombox with like those eight giant batteries you put in the back. Right, but the problem is, and, th- and th- that was the concept, but the problem with that is it's more expensive to operate because you have to maintain each engine and it burns more fuel. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that's why it kind of like fell by the wayside. But like I said, these airplanes are still being used. They were equipped with really some cool stuff to make them more capable of for stuff like that. They had fans on their brakes because they were landing in short airports so they would like put on their brakes real hard so they would have a fan and they could also be fitted with gravel kits what's a gravel kit like a bicycle with a with a nice fender that's real tight against it that kind of goes goes around the wheel yeah so we could do that we could fit an airplane with that to keep the gravel from being thrown like up into the engines or into the wing or damaging any of the airplanes so they put a very tight kind of fender around the wheel and do not all airplanes have that? No. Most oh. airplanes don't have it at all. They're just bare tires. That sounds like all of them should have that, you know? I kind of agree with you, but it's more expense. Oh, of course. Of course. And airlines are all about cutting costs. So like I said, some of these airplanes are still in use today. And for a good reason. They're very popular now in Africa, in Central America, and in South America because of unimproved runways. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. If they're landing on a more, you know, rough terrain, they need that little uh, fender and, guard And on in the South tires. America in particular, they have really high airports, like really high airports. So other airplanes would have problems taking off of a, of a shorter runway at a high airport. Right. You need that power with those extra engines. So the engines. extra engines, yeah. So they have extra high lift wings, extra engines. They don't cruise that fast, but they're really good at doing what they do. They really kind of look like these large military transports with the engines hanging under the wings and the wings kind of sloping down at an anhedral, which is like the opposite of pointing up like this. The wings will kind of slope down like this at an anhedral. They're designed for like basically super high lift and and carriage of heavy stuff. So that's the airplane. That's the airplane. All right, cool. it's, It's a pretty cool airplane. It's very useful. She sounds very versatile. So here is the company. 
And this is not really long, but it's a little longer, like I said. Pacific Southwest Airlines, PSA. It was an airline headquartered in San Diego, California. They were there from 1949 until 1988. It was the first large discount airplane airline in the United States. Ah. PSA called itself the world's friendliest airline, and they painted a smile on the nose of the airplanes. This makes sense. Because we saw that, right? The Los Angeles Times called PSA, quote, practically the unofficial flag carrier of California for almost 40 years. Okay, gotcha. When airlines were regulated by Congress, you would be taxed if you traveled from state to state. Oh, interesting. So if you flew over the border of a state, let's say you flew from Nevada to California, you would have to pay federal tax because you're using federal airways. Wow. But if you stay wholly within a state... No tax. No federal tax because you're what's called intrastate. And that's interesting that you're paying a federal tax and not a state tax. Like if you're flying... Yeah, you would probably pay a state tax as well. Well, what's why, why are they charging the federal tax if they're also charging the state tax? It's an infrastructure that's an infrastructure tax to to fund federal air programs. The tax, the state tax is just state tax, right? It's the same reason. Right, right. It's the same reason we pay federal income more. tax and state income tax. Okay. So the airline is initially operated as only an intrastate airline wholly within the state of California. They never left. The strategy helped them avoid a federal tax, like we talked about, and other expenses associated with traveling across state lines. Gotcha. Okay. Makes sense. Here's where it gets kind of cool. The concept would later serve as the model for Southwest Airlines. Which is exactly the first airline that came to mind when you started describing this one. And Southwest Airlines was just like PSA, except Southwest Airlines initially operated only in Texas. They were an intrastate airline. They did not leave Texas. After deregulation, though, PSA eventually flew to other places in the American West and into Mexico. Okay. But here's a fun fact. PSA was the only intrastate, right? Not interstate, but intrastate airline in the U.S. to ever operate a wide-body airplane. So a really big airplane. Why? It was the L-1011 Yep, yep. Really big. And they flew it from LA to San Francisco. Oh, okay. Two big hubs. That makes sense. Yep, they flew it back and forth from LA to San Francisco. It's Um, a big plane for a short trip. Those are two very big cities. So it can it can be a thing. It's just interesting that they only flew it from LA to San Francisco. But wait, there's more. Okay, so PSA, which is Pacific Southwest Airlines, was known for its sense of humor. Founder Ken Freakin. Friedkin <laughs> wore Hawaiian shirts and he encouraged his pilots and his flight attendants to joke with the passengers. Okay. Its slogan was the world's friendliest airline, but in my opinion, they were trying to be the world's sexiest airline. I mean, <laughs> I'll post the pictures. Hawaiian shirts really get me going. <laughs> right, but I'll, I'm going to show you some pictures in a second and I'll post them on the Instagram. The flight attendants in 1960 had bright colored flight attendant uniforms with very short mini skirts. I mean, I don't even know if I call them mini skirts. I, yeah, I, I uh, remembering the culture of the late 60s, early 70s with those go-go boots and everything. It's like, yeah, I feel like even, you know, the Hollister denim skirts that were huge in the 2000s were longer than these. Oh, wow. So that's short, right? But look at this. Look how short that is. I mean, that's a booty cheek. I, I'm looking at booty cheeks. Right. That is what I'm looking at. Yes. So that's... Oh, it's so lovely, though. It is. They're great. They're 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 wonderful uniforms. I love them so much, but... It really is like, whoa, 
Right. What are you doing here? You right. Know? I mean, I love too that it's almost like accentuated as well because the top is so long. It's a very long line top, which only accentuates the shortness of the short skirt. Now, like Southwest Airlines, they swapped their mini skirts for hot pants in nineteen seventies. Yeah, I'm not mad about it either. Uh, they love sexy marketing. I showed you an ad from um, the PSA flight attendant. And it's talking about how the uniforms will give you an erection. Basically, it's a boner joke. Mm-hmm. They took a lot of liberties back then. It's amazing. I love it. One PSA flight attendant even wrote a book about working at PSA. And she called it Long Legs and Short Nights. Ooh. Could buy it on Amazon. I looked it up. Oh, and throughout PSA's lifetime, the flight attendants with their tiny uniforms, their sense of humor, helped to create a loyal passenger following. Absolutely. If I was watching those butt cheeks walk down the aisle with a giant smile on their face, I'm hooked. I'm flying regularly. Absolutely. And the marketing strategy sounds so oddly familiar to Southwest Airlines because that's exactly what they did. Exactly what they did. So Southwest Airlines founder Herb Kelleher studied PSA extensively and he used many of the airline's ideas for the corporate culture at Southwest including the tiny skirts, how much sex they sold. You know, you could call it sexy marketing back then. You could call it sexist marketing back mm-hmm. then. I'm not sure. It, it was both, right? But remember, that's perfectly fine if you're in Texas. Oh, yeah. I mean, still <laughs> fine if you're in Texas. Also, I love that he had extensive research. Like, how many flights did that man take staring but, at ladies? You know, what's interesting about it is that tie between PSA and, and Southwest actually goes really deep. PSA helped train the first class of mechanics for Southwest Airlines when when Southwest Airlines started. Hmm. PSA also gave Southwest Airlines their flight manuals and acted as a consultant to get Southwest started. But remember, Southwest is solely based in Texas. PSA is solely based in California. So they're helping each other. Right, there's no competition. But they're not competing. I wonder, did they have like any vested inter- like interest financially in... Southwest? I don't know. That's a really good question. I, I didn't get into that. I do know that PSA consulted, charged right. Southwest a consulting fee. Okay. Okay. So there was there. Yeah, there so was I think there was some, yeah, there was some economic. And, and you know, it's funny because uh, Mr. Friedkin, right? The guy who established, Friedkin. what's his name? Ken Friedkin. He probably really liked Herb Kelleher because they both kind of were on the same page. Mm-hmm. I can imagine Hawaiian that. Hawaiian shirts. Yeah. And then I can imagine that that Ken Friedkin was like, yeah, he's going to start a PSA, but it's going to be like in Texas. Yeah. You know, so he was probably passionate about his idea. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, but that guy, Ken Friedkin, he'd inherited the company from his parents. It, it, kind of a neat thing, though. He continued to be a pilot. Even though he was the director oh, wow. of the board, kept... I didn't realize that he was a pilot. That's so he was a pilot. Right. Yep his his dad started the airline. His mom was the other owner. He when his both his parents died, he continued to fly for the airline. Even though he was the director of the board. Cool. So that's, that's kind awesome. of yeah. So that's kind of cool. And you could tell that he's really passionate about it. Right. Right. But here's a detail that becomes important later. So PSA was purchased by U.S. Air, which was later renamed U.S. Airways. They were purchased by U.S. Air in 1986. And the full merger from PSA to U.S. Airways was completed in 1988. This is an important detail. Here's some not important detail. U.S. Airways was later merged with America West. Um, Both of those, that conglomerate was purchased by American Airlines in 2015. So PSA kind of like 
turned into U.S. Airways, which turned into America West, which is now American Airlines. American Airlines actually currently has an, an airplane, an Airbus, painted with that grin. Aww, and they sweet. call it the grinning bird. That's so sweet. And is that just like a vintage throwback for it's them? It's literally vintage. It's just to pay it. tribute to PSA. So that's kind of cool. Not only could I write a multiple multiple books on PSA, we, we could look up and buy multiple books on PSA. I mean, it was a cultural... Not only cultural shift, but like almost like a standard like like it created its own genre its own it, look that's exactly what it did and so it became like a cultural phenomena cool. so yeah we could talk about psa all day their marketing their you know the innovative ideas the fact that they could charge less money because they didn't pay an interstate tax yeah their tickets were at the time, $10. Smart and tactful, but also like leaves a lasting impression. Like you said, the marketing is just, it's risky, but funny. It's done yes. lighthearted. And like, you cannot forget these uniforms, these oh. flight attendant uniforms, the go-go boots, the, you know, the polished hats, the shoulder pads, the jewelry. I loved it. I loved it. The go-go boots, the mod boots and the go-go boots and the, and the colors, right? And then the book, of course, like airlines don't deter their flight attendants from being sexy. You, if you look on Instagram, you will find sexy flight attendants posing in their uniforms, never inappropriately, but the airline will never go to them and say, you're being too sexy online. It's not something they will do. They don't, they want that. that. They want that advertising. They want that marketing. Long legs and short nights. I mean, that's, you know, the book. I just feel like it's not what it is these days anymore, but like uh, maybe that it, it's changed, but that doesn't mean the culture has changed and the principle has changed. It's just more the people have changed. Well, it's not like that in the United States. Oh. It's definitely like that in the Middle East, definitely like that in Asia. Really? Very much in Asia. I need oh to do my more goodness. traveling. You need to go f- take a Korean Airlines flight. Ooh. Yeah, you'll just be like, oh, what am I seeing? That's you- so cool. So anyway. Okay. Let- we're so more international on. travel and I'll get... Some exotic flight attendants. Exactly. Exactly. So we're going to move on to the date. Okay. December 7th, 1987. David Burke was a gate agent for PSA Airlines. But on this day, he was fired for stealing cash from the sale of mini bottles. The total stolen was just $69. However, PSA also suspected him of other crimes, including drug smuggling. Ooh. Okay. So David Burke... Uh, fired for purchasing, I'm assuming, the mini alcohol bottles? Yeah, for the stealing, because at the time they sold them with cash. Okay, okay. Stealing, stealing. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Stealing the cash from the sale. the cash from the sale of the mini alcohols, which was $69. That's what he stole. Okay. So this is David Burke. (gasps) David! My man! Yeah. Looking dapper. Looking dapper. Okay. So love the afro. I've got a great collar happening, a sweet mustache. So let's talk about David a little bit. David was born in Rochester, New York in May of 1952. Uh, He grew up. We don't know much about him. He got in trouble with the law a lot. We do know that. He was not a very good guy, as dapper as he may be. He had seven children. He was never married. Ex-girlfriend, some of his neighbors, and local law enforcement described him as a very violent person. Oh, God. David. In the mid-1980s, he worked as a gate agent for U.S. Air in Rochester, New York. Ooh, now, while Rochester. he was there... Yeah, Rochester. It's a lot colder Ooh, than sorry L.A. Sorry if you're from Rochester. <laughs> <laughs> while 
While working there, he became a suspect in a drug smuggling ring. Well, that's, that, that's common in Rochester. Right. He was bringing all that sweet, sweet cocaine oh, from Jamaica scandal. to Rochester. And he was using U.S. Air to do it. Okay. He was never officially charged, but he was fired from U.S. Air. He's lucky. And I agree. And he was banned from working for the company in the future. Okay? Fair. Totally fair. In 1986, he moved to Los Angeles to avoid further investigation. And it worked. He didn't get investigated anymore. He got a new job as a gate agent for Pacific Southwest Airlines at LAX. He's lucky he was able to go back into that line of work. Well, let, at the time, they didn't have background checks like that. Oh, yeah. And the states deny, don't talk to each other Right. You either. could just be like, yeah. what did you do in your last job? And you could just make something up or just yeah, say, like, oh, yeah, I worked experienced. At, right. Exactly. Or have a friend oh, or yeah. whatever, you know. But remember I said that in late 19... Uh, let me just start that again. Mm-hmm. Remember that I said... Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Words are fun. So remember that I said that in late 1980s, that he moved to LA in late 1986. US Air had just purchased PSA. Oh. So the merger wouldn't be complete until 1988. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But upon completion, Burke would be fired from his job. Well, he was stealing, so And that's he knew it. One. Well, he was banned from working at US Air already. <gasps> oh, oh, right, 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 right. I didn't make that connection. Right. Okay, yeah. So when US Air bought PSA... And then they do... Okay, and they gotcha. finished the merger, they would have gone through the employee list. And it would expose... Exactly. Exactly. And, and they would have booted him out. They gotcha. Would've, they would have fired him at the time. David knew that. So when he got hired with PSA, he didn't know that the merger was going to happen. But eventually the merger was going to happen, and he knew that he was going to get fired. Yeah. Yeah, okay. you're out, David. So maybe he was stealing money. Pat is Well, he's going to live little. it up before he's gone. He's right. not just going to, you know, steal that crawl to- silently into the dark night. He's going to go out with a bang. Steal that $69 and live it up. Yep. So on December 7th, 1987, David Burke got fired, like we said, for stealing. Mm-hmm. He met with his supervisor. He tried to convince his supervisor to give him his job back. He was not able to convince the company to keep him on, and he was terminated. However, he was allowed to work for the remainder of the day, and his credentials were to be left with the supervisor at the end of his workday. Okay. That used to be pretty common. All right. All right. Yeah, sure. Okay. Let's just give him the benefit of the doubt, work your, the rest of your day, drop your stuff off. Okay. Gotcha. I see that you're a little skeptical. I so am you, totally you, skeptical, but I'm also not trying to blame... I don't, I don't want to paint a picture that isn't already painted for, for this lovely individual. Gotcha. So that day, David ticketed himself on PSA flight 1771 to San Francisco. Although David didn't live in San Francisco. He lived in LA. Anyway, 1771 was being operated on the BAE 146, the airplane that I showed you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The flight was not full. It was booked with 38 passengers out of 100 seats, and there were five crew on board. So it was kind of an empty airplane. Yep. 38. It's half full. You know, whatever. It was a very routine route. PSA had flown this route from LA to San Francisco for literally decades on all kinds of airplanes, including a wide body. They did it as many as seven round trips every day. So the pilots are literally blindfolded at that point. Just oh, to keep that, I mean, you're all your seven round trips in a day. I mean, that is just all day, every day. So they fly this route a lot. It's their bread and butter. But obviously, being a ticket agent, David was able to see who was on the passenger list. Mm-hmm. And he could see that his supervisor and the chief pilot of PSA were listed as passengers. Okay. Both of those employees took the flight from LA to San Francisco on a regular basis. In fact, his supervisor used it to commute every single day because he lived in San Francisco. Wow. He flew it every day to get to his job. That sounds exhausting, doesn't it? 
It does. I don't even, you know, I don't even like riding the subway for more than 10 stops. I can't imagine an hour and like, a half schlepping into the airport, getting on the plane. I mean, I know it's expedited at that point, but still, that is a tough commute. That is a tough commute. He ticketed it. Ticketed himself, and the flight departed as normal. PSA seventeen seventy one climbed up to twenty two thousand feet, which was their cruising altitude. They cruised over the Central California coast. The captain and the co-pilot, they have regular conversation. They call air traffic to ask about some turbulence. All's well. Okay. But this is where our timeline gets a little sketchy, and we have to make some assumptions. So bear with me. Bearing. We hear someone on the cockpit voice recorder enter and leave the lavatory behind the behind the cockpit. Okay. We think that David Burke passes a note to his former supervisor because 20 seconds or so pass and we hear like a little unintelligible sound that sounds like men's voices, but we can't make any words out. We just kind of hear a mumble in the background, Okay. which sounds like aggravated or irritated. Do we know who used the lavatory or? We don't. We just hear it. Okay. But then we do know that suddenly two gunshots are fired in the (gasps) cabin. Oh, that escalated quickly. It did. David Burke's supervisor was murdered. Oh my goodness! Scandal! Okay, all right. Lavatory, scuffling, supervisor shot, and murdered. The first officer hears it. He immediately calls air traffic control, and he says that a gun has been fired on board. (sighs) Air traffic control responds with, PSA 1771, say again. (laughs) Yeah, uh, excuse me? Exactly, but that's the last radio call that (gasps) PSA 1771 was able to make. So let's go to the CVR to figure it out. Oh my goodness. The cockpit voice recorder records the the, the cockpit door opening and a panicked female voice (sighs) saying, we have a problem. The captain replies, what kind of problem? We hear another gunshot. This time, the flight attendant is dead. Oh no! And then like a bad action movie, we hear David Burke's voice say, I'm the problem. Oh, oh, God, David, the material, come I on. Know. He's better writing. Ay, ay, ay. Then he shoots both pilots and oh, kills them. Are you new? At point blank range. Did you want to die? Was that your intention? Yeah, it escalated, didn't it? Oh, my goodness. That yeah. really got out of hand. <laughs> At this point, the aircraft controls are pressed full forward. The autopilot is disengaged oh by goodness. pressure. Oh, it was either from the slumping bodies of the pilots or by David himself. Slumping bodies. What we do know is at the same time the throttles are pressed fully forward <laughs> and maximum power is applied. Oh. So things are not looking great at the moment. Yeah, obviously. So now all we can hear, so now we start to lose the cockpit voice recorder. We can hear increasing wind noise as the airplane is pitched down and accelerates. The overspeed warning starts to go off. Oh, my goodness. And it doesn't stop. The BAE 146 then breaks the sound barrier. <gasps> oh, my goodness. Talk about coming in hot. Ooh, yeah. I, I knew I could give this one to you, Aaron. Oh, my goodness. Also, like, anytime you're going to say breaks the sound barrier, it's like the tone is set. We all know. In an it. airliner. That's the thing. It's like airliners don't go that fast. This one in this particular is This guy's got four one. engines on it. Yeah, and he's pointing downhill. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. We do. We can make out some other things over the cockpit voice recorder, namely oh. another gunshot. <gasps> this time, the chief pilot of PSA is dead. Then, Wait, I thought all the pilots were dead at this point. So in the cockpit, you have two pilots. Right. You had the supervisor and you had the chief pilot in the back as a passenger. And he's, oh, oh, right, 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 right. Right, and he's just yes. commuting home. Oh, no. Your literal only hope of getting out of this is yep. now... Now we think we think the reason that he was shot is because he 
heard it, saw it, came to the cockpit to recover. <sighs> then we hear wind noise, nothing but wind noise. We can't hear passengers yelling. We can't hear anything because the wind is so loud. The wind noise is so overwhelming. It even blocks out the sound of the overspeed warning eventually. Oh my goodness. Now, what? where is this wind sound coming from? It's coming from the outside because the airplane is going so fast through the air. Oh my goodness. So when airplanes do go fast, so much you, get increased, you get increased wind noise, but... And then we hear silence, oh, obviously, no. right? Yeah. So just after 4 p.m. that day, PSA 1771 impacted the hillside at oh. a cattle ranch in the Santa Lucia Mountains near, uh, near Paso Robles, which is in Central California. Oh, my goodness. I'm sure it was incinerated. <laughs> yeah, we're getting there. The plane was estimated to have crashed at a speed near 800 miles an hour. The aircraft hit the ground with 5,000 times the force of gravity, <sighs> and it was 70 degrees nose down. That's nearly vertical. Oh, yeah, yeah. Where the plane hit was a rocky hillside. It left an impact crater less than two feet deep and just four feet across. Oh, my goodness. Tiny. A tiny impact crater. That's how hard the ground was. It was a rocky hillside. So the, the ground being hard is what made the impact so small? Yes. Or, okay, all right. I didn't The ground know that. was hard. So nearly everything, every part, and everything in the airplane was disintegrated. A flashover fire consumed pieces of the wreckage further, but the jet fuel burned up so quickly because of the impact was so hard and fast, the fuel was rendered into an aerosol. So basically, it was a quick fireball and no ground fire ensued. <sighs> So that's pretty dramatic. I did not expect this. I mean, here I was looking at a picture of David being groovy with his sweet afro, stealing $69 worth of stuff. I thought we were going to get silly with it. No, we got serious. Disintegratingly so serious. Yes, that went so bad so quick. <sighs> yeah, that came in really hot. <laughs> <laughs> it literally came in hot. It's uh -huh. the name of this episode. Coming okay. in hot. Exactly. As you can imagine, I'm going to name it that. <laughs> As you can imagine, no one survived. Shocker. The force of the impact meant that human remains were very small and Aww. only and the only identifiable remains were feet in shoes. <laughs> feet in shoes. My goodness, that is not what I thought was going to come out of that. Yeah. This is what happens when you crash an aluminum tube into a rocky hillside at 800 miles, at over the but speed of But I'm just surprised sound. that anything lasted, you know? Like, I, I, I can't believe that anything was recognizable. And the fact that it's human feet concealed in shoes is disturbing. That is all that was remaining. But not even that much was remaining because of the passengers that were on board... 27 of them were never identified. So that yeah. means there was only like a handful of passengers that you could, that could be identified. Right, right. And probably from their feet in shoes at all. Aye, aye, aye. Not a single piece of wreckage is said to be larger than eight by eight inches square. Oh. So you can imagine the force it takes to break titanium and aluminum and other parts into bits that small. It, it, well, we can call them bits. They're bits. That's all they are at this point. However, Critical material was recovered from the crash site. The NTSB was soon joined by the FBI. And you can imagine why. Why? Well, the NTSB was doing the investigation. And they found some things that would have allowed the FBI to 
suspect that it was not just a normal crash. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, obviously, yes, yes. Okay. I didn't realize that the FBI was going to be interested, but clearly, why not? The FBI normally is not interested in aircraft crashes. In this case, they are. The CVR, which is the cockpit voice recorder, and the flight data recorder are both recovered, but it took a lot of time to read them. They had to be sent to a special laboratory at NASA for recovery, and it took a lot of time. That's due to the fact that they nearly sustained critical damage. So they are very small boxes, right. but they were almost damaged beyond repair. They were able to extract the data out of them, though, which Good. is a testament to the engineering of those I parts. I mean, absolutely, 100%. But while they were sending those out and extracting data, the, the NTSB and the FBI continued to search through the material. Real quick, I'm going to show you a picture of the crash site. Oh, yes, please do. Before. I always want to see it. If it's a body, if it's an autopsy, I want well, to see Well, remember it. that, remember that there's nothing left. Of course. Oh, my, there's literally nothing. I, I'm looking at basically what looks like a field after Woodstock. People are just picking up trash. That's that it. is crazy. It just looks like a ticker tape parade. Yeah. Yeah. Picking up some litter and that's about it. But wow. there's critical material here. And it's actually really interesting what they found. After two days of digging through the wreckage we just saw, they found parts of a 44 caliber revolver containing six spent cartridges in the, the cart- cylinder. Uh, the- no, is it a cylinder? It's- I think it's the cylinder, yeah. The cartridges in the chamber? No, uh, that's where they shoot from. Uh, anyway, whatever. They found they found parts of a 44 cali- caliber revolver containing six spent cartridges, and they found a fragment of a fingertip, <gasps> which was recovered with only the trigger and the trigger guard section of the gun. The FBI was able to lift prints from the fingertip fragment. Which David, were, you're done, son. Which were identified as David Burke's. Forensic analysts believe this is crazy to me. This gets this is cuckoo bananas right here. Oh, because the rest of the story has been it's very not, tame. Right, it has been very tame, right? <laughs> Forensic analysts believe that this evidence indicates that David was alive and gripping the gun tightly during the impact. Had he committed suicide, and this is what the forensic specialist said, had he committed suicide and was as was previously thought at first he would have dropped the gun or he wouldn't have been gripping it very tightly. Right. But he was gripping it so hard when the plane crashed that his finger was severed and was stuck with the trigger and the trigger guard. Right, right. But wait, there's more. Exactly. Paper isn't very susceptible to impact damage. Oh, okay. So they found... Even with the burst of flame? Some of it wasn't burned. Hmm. But they found the note... Do you remember we said that David passed a note to his supervisor? Yes. They found no. the note. It was written on an airsick bag, and it was in David's handwriting. And the message read, are you ready? Quote, Hi, Ray. I think it's sort of ironical that we ended up like this. I asked for some leniency for my family, remember? Well, I got none, and you'll get none. David. Damn. He, this was planned. He wanted to do this. Straight up. Oh, my goodness. What was the long... Like, did you want to kill yourself, David? Because clearly you wanted to kill your supervisor. That much is obvious. In addition to... Well, we're about to find out. In addition to the evidence uncovered at the crash site, other evidence was found. Mm. David Burke had left a farewell message on his girlfriend's answering machine. Okay, then. That answers that. That answers that. 
So this was before we had voicemail. So <laughs> I'm just what did we do? <laughs> Remember we had those little machines with the tape that oh, ran. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. I was like, well, then, you know, was this like, you know, a, a pigeon was sent out? I no, we had an answering machine, remember? It had to yes, ring five times. Yes, of course I remember the answering machine, your home phone number, the cassette tape attached exactly, to it. Yes. Oh, yeah, totally. Oh, so frustrating. When your tape was literally full? Yeah, I remember yeah. that. So here's what happened. David Burke's Mm-mm. co-worker lent him his gun. Mm-mm. Can I just say, if anybody ever comes up to you and says, Hey, Aaron, can I borrow your forty four re- caliber revolver? No. That has bullets in it? You say... No. Oh, sure. <laughs> also, like your coworker. Like, do we not know of the, the quote unquote going postal? You know, like. Well, at this time, we work? didn't really have the term going postal. Oh, it I guess happened, not. That but it was wasn't, in what? That the, was like the a 90s. 90s thing. That became like a 90s yeah, thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess this was pretty early on. This is what? 86? This is happening? Yeah. Yeah. December we're right on the cusp right there. We are. We're right on the cusp. I think David contributed to this. I, I, it's obviously it's that that mentality. It's the same same concept. We know that he got the gun from a coworker. It was a loaded forty four Magnum revolver, which is what the the guy <laughs> told him. He said, "Hey, the, the, here's my revolver," and it was loaded. Just loaning somebody a loaded. I gun. I want to know just... like what the excuse like what what did David say that he wanted the gun for? We don't know. Oh, I know. I'm like what. Well, it's already far-fetched enough to think that you're going to lend your loaded gun to someone. But like, I hope he at least had something Some that reason, he said he was so. going to use it for that made you feel like it was going to be okay to lend a loaded gun to a friend. He was going to open envelopes with it or something. Has I'm, a criminal past but, but and is getting would, fired. But let me ask you, what would be a good reason? Hey, Aaron, can I borrow your forty-four auto? Uh, hey, Shannon, what do you need it for? I, I hit a deer and I want to put it out of its misery. Hey, there you go. I mean, I have um, I I need to open tomato soup because I forgot my <laughs> can opener. Well, I that's just, uh, that's obviously more sound of an of an excuse for sure. But I just don't know. So here's what he did. He got the gun. He used the unsurrendered credentials mm-hmm. to bypass security of because of the, if you were like an an airline employee, you could just go around security. Okay, so he bypassed security. So that's the end of the story. So now I cover what happened and what's changed. So what happened? We have a really clear picture of what yeah. happened, right? We don't really have any questions about Mm-mm. it. No lingering questions. No. But let's talk about what's changed. Okay. And I think we touched on this a little bit, right? To start with, airport employees cannot bypass TSA at all. So you can't get around yeah. security. You have to go through every single time. Great. That started with, with this David. incident. Yep. Makes sense. We didn't have the TSA back then. That was an invention of post-9-11. But we had airport security. Okay. At the time, they used metal detectors. They continued to use metal detectors for a long time until they switched to x-ray machines. I didn't realize TSA was was born out of 9-11, like the physical word itself. Yes. Transportation Safety Administration was born out of 9-11. Wow. I had no idea. And yeah. But- Flight crew members like myself can still bypass security, but we use a special system called known crew member, okay? But that means you have to be a crew for an airplane. So you can't be a gate agent and bypass security through known crew member. Okay, so only people that are physically flying on, on the, airline, the aircraft. They yes. okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Even we get randomly te- track checked. And I've been randomed. I've gone a month without being randomed and then I've been randomly checked like How does five that make you feel safety-wise? Uh, I feel okay about it because we have a crash axe that's like right behind us. Some of the pilots are have guns. Wow. It's called an FFDO. 
FFDO. Uh, so not every flight has somebody like that on it. Not okay. every flight, but it depends on the airline. Some airlines have more FFDOs than others. But So we can get around it, but sometimes we have to get randomly checked anyway. And that includes taking off our shoes and going through the millimeter, millimeter wave machines and the x-rays and all that stuff. They beefed up security across the board. Okay. Not only for this, but for several other incidents across the board. But as a country, we have a good background check system now for employers. Okay. I mean, yeah, I, I can understand. A better background check system, I'll say, for employers. We covered, I covered this in another episode. Not necessarily for pilots, but for a lot of people, you know, checking for felonies and stuff. They would yeah. be able to find felonies in pilots, but we do a good job at that. Apparently, we didn't in the 80s. Well, it's because there were so many disgruntled employee attacks not only in aviation, but in just all industries. You said going postal. I mean, that's become yeah. like a cultural phenomenon. Oh, yeah. Right? How we fire people. And you seem shocked when I said, oh, they just let him work till the end of the day. Yeah. That was normal. But how we fire people now is totally different. And this is one of the, this is this incident is one of the incidents that moved toward that, right? So when we fire somebody now, we take their credentials immediately. Yep. And they're escorted off the premises with security. That makes sense to and me. And security marches them off the property. It makes sense to me too. So you don't have this kind of thing. He sat there all day with his credentials. All day. He could see the computer systems. Yes. He had enough. He got fired in the morning and he had enough time to plan this by the <laughs> by the 3.30 flight or 4 o'clock flight. And I mean, I, I, I get that, you know, you don't want to dehumanize anybody by having this whole escort service, but you are in a position of total power. It'd be the same if you worked at a hospital, like with vulnerable patients and medications around. Like there's just any degree of wrongdoing that could happen. That's the story. That's the story. Uh, that's the whole story. That's I have, the story. I have sources. I'll read them to you in a little bit, but just tell me your thoughts. I mean, you said that escalated quickly. Like, I, I mean, like I said, I, I definitely thought it was going to go in a more humored fashion because I just, it was too, Because you you've know, heard other episodes and it's like... I have, obviously. Right. And also, you know, uh, you see a good mustache and a fro and you're just like, that person's not going to go murder people. Yeah. That's not going to happen. And, and you know, a lot of the incidents that we cover, they happen slowly. Yeah, true. You can kind of see it coming. There's like an incident, this happened and then this happened and this happened and you're just like shaking your head like this guy got fired and immediately turned around and made this plan like within oh oh, it has to be within like a matter of a couple of hours like max absolutely couple of hours max and i think you know like even just you the beginning of the end of this story starts with a gunshot and then it just comes in so quickly comes in so hot i mean this incineration the feet and shoes it's It's a lot to digest in such a short period of time. When it first started to take off, I really, like I said, I, I was surprised. I was like, well, what'd you do that for? Now you just screwed yourself. But I never went into it with the intention that he was going to harm himself. It was more vengeance. But he clearly wanted to take everybody down with him. Right. He was not, he he knew he was not coming out of that one alive. Wow. And he planned it because, you know, he calls his girlfriend and he says. Right. He was just like, okay, I got fired. Now I want death. Now I'm going to die. Yeah. Yeah. I want you to die and I want me to die. Exactly. That escalated quickly. I just, the level of access that he has prior to the incident is still just baffles my mind. It's just like, 
fire the guy and then send him out there to work and let him buy a ticket and let him keep going through security and let it like... He wasn't on anybody's radar. Nope. He was completely under the radar. But I guess also that speaks to a, however fake, but more wholesome time of people don't do bad things. Yeah. So it's fine. Right. But you listen to a lot of true crime pro- oh, podcasts. Oh, absolutely. And people always much. do bad things. They people always... are bad. Yes, they are. And they've been doing bad things forever and ever and they ever. They have been doing it forever. And guess what? If you leave them to their own devices they're gonna do even worse things <laughs> they really have to they're be watched. gonna do the worst things ever and david is a good example i mean Absolutely. this guy this guy went oh, i'm getting fired well might as well just kill everybody and myself right and like you got fired for stealing like there's no nobility in that clearly you're not gonna make good decisions so like go away that you know it's you can't address that level of like mental illness that level of like I'm going to give up now. And I think it's also like he chose death as a matter of predicament and opportunity. Like he knew his first thought was, I'm going to kill my supervisor. How do I do this? And he's like, this is the only way I can rationalize it. I guess I have to die too. Speaks to me more than I want to die. It was more, I'm going to kill you. How do I make that happen? And oh, my death is a, you know, is just bundled up in the delivery of your death. Favorite line. I'm the problem. It's like a, it's like an Arnold movie. It's almost like oh a my goodness. yippee-ki-yay motherfucker moment or something. He's exactly. Just like, Guess who's the problem? I'm the problem. And he probably thought he was so cool. At the moment? He was like, Ugh. At the moment, the it's exactly what it was. He was like, I'm the problem. I'm sure he was like kaboom, smiling, kaboom. eyebrows up, like just patting himself on the back for that one. That is, a, that is a psycho moment right there. Oh, yeah. That is an insane moment. So let me read my sources. Okay. Uh, my sources were the official NTSB report. I use um, a website called Plane Crash Wiki. I use Wikipedia. And my main source for this one was, like I said, the official NTSB report and the LA Times. So, sad story. Yeah, it's a sad story. It's it a is. known story, but it's a sad story. But you know, I, I asked Mary, should I give, should I give Aaron, um, like a near death or a mass murder? And Mary said, mass, mass murder. murder. Give her the mass murder. <laughs> right. Exactly. Go exactly. and kill her. Give her the mass murder. Uh, yeah. So give I me went, the murder. Don't give me near death. Give me all the death. Mm-hmm. So I went. Sounds perfect. I'll give her the message. I had never heard that story before. And it's fairly recent, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to think what I was doing in 1987. Well, that was, like I said, that was my dad's birthday. So celebrating probably having a birthday party <laughs> and it would have been set. It would have been seven, um, 7 PM East coast time. So yeah. Oh yeah. You were yeah. mid birthday party. Yeah. Probably giving dad some socks and being like, and him being like, Oh God. Being like, thanks son. I love exactly. them. They're thanks. Great. They're great. Coming from his 11-year-old, you know. but He could be on a flight going down. So he's like, socks are great. Socks are socks. great. That socks sounds great. Are great. That's the story. That's a good story. It's a terrible story, actually, it's, but it's a really good, terrible story. But it's story. a good, terrible story, right? We can learn a lot from it, and I think that we a lot of the lessons we've already taken. All right, well, we're going to wrap it up. Okay. This Aaron, thanks for being episode. on. I love how you take the the death and the, and the disaster. I'll, I'll bring you more of these. Please do. Because there's a lot, there's a lot of um, stories that I sh- sort of shy away from writing because I don't have an appropriate co-host to dump giant disasters on. So dump giant disasters fantastic. on me. I'm a so, giant disaster dumping her. station. Exactly. Wow. All right. Creative editing, and that that's going to turn into something completely different. Oh, I'm sure it will. All right. Well, anyway, thanks, Aaron. I appreciate you being on, and we'll have you on again soon. Cool. Can't wait.